0: you continue with me in that same prayer. Spirit, we have nothing if we don't have you, so we ask that in this moment you would work in our hearts. Father, as we open the word, would you open us up and would you do your work? pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, and uh, it's good to see everyone. Welcome for those of you that are online as well. Ken got us started last week on our new series on the church. In the first few weeks, we're looking at some of the overarching realities, and then we're going to drill into some specifics. So that's what we're going to do today is another one of those overarching realities. Before I launch into that, though, I do want to uh, give a special invitation. If you are a young couple in our church family, and by that I mean you're married recently-ish, you can determine what that means, or you're engaged or you're incipiently engaged, um, we'd love to have you over, Devette, and I'd love to have you over for a barbecue tomorrow. Most of you already know that and have had a chance to RSVP. If for some reason that didn't get to you, it has now. Just come up right after the service, talk to Devette, and we would love to have you come over tomorrow. So with that out of the way, let me, um, let me read you something from our church. Uh, we call it our mission statement. We could also call it our vision statement. And the reason for that is because people argue over which is which, and so we just gave up and said, we will call our purpose statement the overarching biggest thing, and that's what Ken did last week. The glory of God is the purpose for everything and everyone. It is not about us, it is about him and how we relate to him, obviously. Uh, But then under that, what does it look like to live that out, whether you call that a vision or a mission, or you try to parse those out or keep them together? Here's what we've said, Um, and this is something that would be true of any church that is faithful to the gospel but everyone chooses the wording that makes sense for how they're doing ministry. So here's how we've put it. Our mission is to partner with Jesus in offering our community and the world a better story and a better family modeled on Christ's redeeming love. It's to offer the community a better story and better family that's modeled on Christ's redeeming love. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. That's what we're seeking to do. And today we want to talk about what is that better story? And how are we experiencing that? And I wanna really kind of approach it with four simple uh, controlling ideas. We're gonna cover all kinds of territory. It's gonna go all all over the place in some way. So I wanna keep four central things just in sequence. We're gonna be uh, just looking at the fact that this is a better story for everyone. Sometimes it doesn't intuitively feel that way. It feels like it's for a select group. It's for everyone. Um, And then I want to ask the question for each of us to examine ourselves with, what story am I living by? Not what story do I say I'm living by, but if I look at my life and really evaluate it, what's the story that's actually driving it? And then what story does God offer? And then finally, uh, will I let him rewrite my script right now, wherever it needs rewriting? So if you have a Bible, would you open the Hebrews chapter 11 and we're going to anchor there. We're going to look at a number of different passages and think of a number of different things. But Hebrews 11 is going to be kind of our uh, fastening point where we anchor down. And um, it will give us some language and some, a picture more that will help us to think about this biblically because it's a grand biblical theme. And here's, here's one place that it shows up in a way that maybe we can get our minds around and that we've actually been through recently. We've just been through the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11 is not that far back. Some of us may um, remember that message in this time. Hebrews 11 is this story where God is telling a bunch of different stories about people who were faithful, who were living, if you will, the story that he called them to live in the midst of the world, even though it was hard. And he he points out all of these different people and their stories. And and he points out a whole gamut of people, people like Daniel, who's amazing and and lofty, and people like uh, Samson, who's a complete train wreck, right? And everyone in between, men, women, old, young, all the generations uh, throughout the scriptures of people who were like us people who were some better than us, some worse than us, but just people and, and whose lives were not this one unbroken string of victories. Some of them were mostly a mess, but at strategic times, at least, they managed to trust God and hang in there with him by his power. And the story worked out in their lives in a way that brought honor to him and, and blessed them. And, and so the writer of Hebrews is using this chapter to tell us to say, hey, you can do this too. People just like you through all time have been able to do this. And we want to dive back into that passage, and we want to just look at a few verses. So if you have your Bible open to Hebrews 11, uh, let's pick it up in verse 13, where it's talking about basically the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and that whole um, cluster of the beginning of the family story. And it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, right? Now, to translate that into our parlance, they are living in this world like everybody else, and yet they're living by a different story. They're living as strangers and exiles. They're a part of the community. They're doing the same things as the people around them, and yet the controlling narrative of their life is one that is authored elsewhere. And that's really what we are talking about when we talk about God are offering us a better story. So this is their example of it. And then it says in verse 14, people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, it wasn't the only story. There were more stories on offer. There were different kinds of lives that could be lived. These people didn't just materialize in the middle of God's plan, he called them from where they were and said, come and join me in what I'm doing. And they did. And they could have gone back. They could have reverted to old ways, but they didn't. They continued to live by that better story. As it is, verse 16, they desire a better country, and that's equivalent for us for the story. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then let's back up and catch one verse from above. Verse 10, God, he was looking forward. I'm sorry. No, this is talking about Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. Um, He was looking forward to the city who has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So the reality is they were looking for the city. That's the metaphor for them. Uh, We're using the idea of story. They They were living in this idea, this life that God called them to, that he was designing, that he was authoring. And they weren't letting the story of the world around them be the ultimate reality for them. He was the one who had something particular that he called them into. Now, as followers of Jesus, that's what he's done. He's called us into something, and he's got this story that he's writing that he's brought us into. As a family, as a church, part of what we do is we experience that ourselves, and that transforms us, and then we have the opportunity to share that with others so that it can transform them as well. That's the better story idea, right? And so these people had other options, but they stuck with this one. And that's what we're called to do. And what I want to do before we dive too deeply into what that story is, or even the stories we uh, live by, is, is maybe pull an elephant out of the corner of the room and identify it. Because I think in reality, for a lot of us, at a a grand theological level, right, when we're talking in spiritual terms and thinking about church and worship and prayer and and, uh, witnessing and all of the spiritual disciplines and all of the things that we would call God stuff, it's easy for us to see how my life intersects with what God's doing and how I can live in light of him and what he's calling me to. But then there's all the rest of life, there's all the other details, and for most of us, that's most of life. And, and what I really need to know is if God is writing the story, does the story actually work for me? Right? Is he just looking for monks and missionaries and ministers, or is he looking for regular people too? And so this week I've been thinking about a, a theological question that had never occurred to me before, But since it's occurred to me, I've thought about it a fair amount, and I actually think it's one of the more profound theological questions that can be asked because it has incredibly practical ramifications. And honestly, I've never heard anyone ask this question. I've never asked it before myself, and I suspect that most, if not all of you, have never asked it either, and I think it's huge. And I think it's an important question to ask as we begin to look at the idea of God authoring a story, and it's this. Does God like baseball? Does God like baseball? Now, I'm not being, that sounds kind of silly and frivolous. I'm actually not being silly and frivolous at all. I really mean that question. Does God like baseball? And the reason I'm asking that is because I like baseball. Right? And it's not even my sport. It's not even, it's, it's, it's lower down in my sports. And yet, I still like it. And I'm, I'm lower down on the the, the, the totem pole of people that are really into sports. I'm probably somewhere in the middle, and it's not really my main sport, and yet I still find myself very interested. I'm a Dodger fan, that helps, except for the last three days. Ooh, You know, if you're an Angel fan, you've got two guys that you can talk about, and then just a lot of grieving because your owner gave away your whole team. I'm so sorry, that is so grim, right? But you're still checking it all the time, Checking the scores, checking what's happening. Is Mookie ahead or is Akuna ahead? Who's going who's to win the M- NL MVP? Is, are the Dodgers going to be able to find any pitcher other than Clayton Kershaw? Can anyone stop the, uh, the, uh, the Braves? Oh, questions like that. If you're Alan, you're like, oh, I'm giving up on baseball because the Padres went all in and they didn't do anything with that. Sorry, Alan. Um, right. It's not really even my sport, and yet I think about it some, and I check the scores, and I'm interested in that. Because it's part of life, and it, it interests me. There's other things in my life that interest me a whole lot more and that are a whole lot more significant to me, but aren't what would typically be called the spiritual stuff, the God stuff. Where's God in those things? Does, does God Is God really interested, and in is he really with me when I'm changing a tire? or when I'm changing a diaper, or just when I'm changing the world. Because honestly, you know, my life is built of the thousand mundane things. And for every one part glorious, there's like ten parts tedious. And if God's only in that one part glorious, that, hey, the world is changing, we just did this great missional thing, or this amazing worship moment happened, then what does that do with the rest of my life? And I think, uh, theologically, when we think just in grand theological terms, we're good with God's writing the story and that's all great, but then we live life at every level, not just up here. And then the further down into just the details of life we go, sometimes the harder it is to find connection. And we don't have time to explore how all of that connects today. That's a much bigger topic than we can look at. But I just want to remind us that when God created us, he created this life. And a lot of the things that we think of in primarily, it's easy to see how they would relate to God and what God is doing, wouldn't even be here if it weren't for sin, right? We wouldn't have missionaries. And they're like, you know, the seals of the, of the kingdom of God. Not the or or, or but the Ura ones, Right? We wouldn't even have missionaries. I'm not sure that we would have pastors. Right? And the non ministry jobs that it's easy to see, well, I see how they're helping. You know, doctors, we wouldn't need doctors, we wouldn't need cops. So many people we say, oh, I see how what they're doing meets this particular need, but what about just an accountant? or a soccer coach, or, you know, how do those things fit? It's like, it's it's easy to forget that when God designed us and when he designed this world, he intended normal life. That got subverted and twisted and damaged, and that means that his redemptive plan has to be the center of gravity for everything we do, but he still is interested in normal life. When it talks about God's glory, for instance, in Romans 11, it says, from him and to him and through him are all things, to him be the glory forever. When it talks about the plan of redemption, it says, in Christ, he is reconciling all things to himself, all of creation. Last week, as Ken was helping us wrestle with the idea of glorifying God, it's whether you eat or drink or whatever you, whatever you do, whatever you do watching baseball, sitting in traffic, whatever you do, glorify God. Is God just just with me and is God just interested in writing a story that has me out on the mission field or, or, or on the mean streets of the city helping people? What if I'm stuck in traffic like everybody else and I'm just on my way home to make dinner and do some laundry and my mind wanders and what I find myself thinking about is baseball? Where's God in that? And we have to remember that God has designed all of life and he's designed us to embellish and enrich life using the gifts he's given us in so many ways. And everything about life is possible to be brought into this realm of glorifying him and brought under his lordship so that it is a fundamental and significant part of his story in my life, or I shouldn't be in my life at all. If that can't be true, then it's actually sinful, which means in reality, God does like baseball. He does, and ice cream cones, and laughter. And he shows up, not just in the spiritual times, but he shows up in the to-do lists, and the lesson plans, and the spreadsheets, and the blueprints and the details that we're always dealing with. So as we talk about the, the, the story that God offers, I think it's important for us to remember that I don't have to be a missionary or a minister. Well, I have to be a minister, this so that's what he called me to, but you don't have to, right? Unless he calls you to that. I don't have to be one of those things in order to be a vital and integral part of what he's doing. And, I, and he's a God who has a plan for all of those things to bring them together in what he's doing. And, and what he wants me to do is bring all of that to him because we're all living by these various storylines and all of them except the one he offers are ultimately bankrupt. All of them will ultimately disappoint us. All of them. All of them will ultimately fail us and leave us broken and hurting. And he offers a different story and it captures up every detail of life. Yes, there's a redemptive center to it. Yes, there are moments when it's about being heroic. But there's also a whole lot of moments where it's just about being humbly faithful because God works that way. So when we talk about God's story, it's a story that embraces and encompasses everyone and everything. So let's look at that story and let's start by asking the question, what story am I living? What story am I personally living right now? Not the one that I say I'm living, not the one that I know that I should be living, but if I slow it down enough to actually look at the values that wind up practically driving my life, what story am I living? Let's look back at our examples here in Hebrews 11. And let's notice something here. If you pick up just this one verse, it's kind of the climactic verse of our passage, verse 16. It says, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared for them a city. They did it, that's good, that's right. But it doesn't come contextless. Verse 15 is also there, and it reminds us that there's other stories. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. How often do I find myself in the terms of Hebrews, thinking from the land that I've come out of, how often do I find myself, partially at least, if not fully, kind of turning my feet as if I'm going to head back that direction? How often does the story of God rescuing and transforming me get lost in the other stories that creep in? We are suckers for stories and we live them out all the time as little kids we just grow up pretending Um, we had a vacation recently and it was a staycation we didn't go anywhere someone got us into disneyland for which we're really grateful and we hadn't been there me i think it never could figure it out so it's a long time ago some of you may not have been born i don't know it's been a long time and it was a lot of fun but one of the things that it was i forgot about was all the little girls in the princess costumes now, there's a lot more princesses than there used to be. You know, it used to be Cinderella and you know, Pocahontas was new last time I went, probably. And now there's a bunch of other princesses. I don't even know who they are, because I haven't kept up with the movies. but there's all these little girls wandering around, all dressed up in all these different ways, making pretend. And there's all these little tiny yodas and ninjas running around, or not ninjas Yo- uh, Jedis, right? And they're, they're all running around doing this because they have this story they're living in. Right? And it's really cool. It's really fun. And it's really cute to us. But I found it interesting that Disneyland actually has signs posted everywhere that says, if you're 14 or older, you can't wear a costume. And I wonder, why do they have to do that? Because some 75-year-old guy still thinks of himself as Luke Skywalker and is going to run around. And that's kind of scary. Right? And and we think, well, that's kind of odd. But really, is it? I mean, there's, there's times, you know, you go to the Barbie movie and you wear pink, okay. You know, it's May 4th and you dress like a Jedi. There's occasions where it's still socially acceptable, but otherwise we generally don't do that. But there's this drive to story that we all deal with. Sometimes it shows up very overtly and Disneyland has to say, well, you know, keep your story under control there because we don't want it to freak other people out. But there's a lot of more uh, common and more hidden stories that drive so much. Just just look at advertising. Advertising is about a story, right? They want the, the people who are selling the product want me to identify with a life. They want me to identify with an experience. They want me to identify with the person in the commercial, not the product. If I identify with the person, then of course I'll use the product. And so they do some very strange things. I don't remember who it was, but they're like, be the hero of dinner, right? Be the, yeah, who doesn't wanna be the hero of dinner? I don't wanna bring dinner home. I don't wanna cook dinner. I wanna be the hero. Here's dinner. Ah, woo! Right, or the gain uh, detergent commercials, which are very bizarre, right? In the middle of the commercial, they'll kind of break the flow of the commercial and then have this little movie in the middle. Because somebody suddenly smells the scent of the fabric. It's come out of the dryer, or it's even on the subway, and now they're sniffing each other on the subway, which is creepy, but they stop time. So nobody else knows, and they're able to... And then they dance, and all these weird things that you would never do in real life, but what they're doing is they're creating an experience saying, it's kind of like that. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you like that experience? By the way, here it is. When they could actually say... Smells good, cleans good. We're good, right? By gain. Ironically, uh, by the way, Discover Magazine, I I learned this last night. In 2023, they just said, here's the best smelling detergents. I don't know how they determined that. Gain came in number sixth. So I don't know what they're going to do with that. But I don't know that it's all about reality anyway. It's about a story. One of my favorites is Home Depot. And they have a slogan that comes and goes, I don't know, I haven't seen a commercial in a while, if it's on now, but it will be again, you're probably familiar with it, how doers get more done. Right, they could say, we sell screws, but they don't. How doers get more done. I googled and I wound up on one of their employee newsletters. I don't know how, but it was on the web. And they have this whole story about us in the employee newsletter. This Is the they don't use these words, but this is the tone. This is the epic story of our customers, the doers that get more done. And they're trying to get all their employees to go, yeah, these are the people coming into the store, these heroes of hammers, right? This is gonna be great. And so the idea is, hey, come to Home Depot, you doer you, and you'll get more done, which sells a whole lot more. You know, I'm going there for garden stuff, and it's a lot better to say, come to Home Depot, and get more done than come to Home Depot and get hosed, which is actually what I'm going for, but nobody wants that message, right? It's all about a story, trying to connect me with something that I can live in for a moment. That's marketing, but it goes through every layer, doesn't it? What are the stories that drive you and me? If I really back up the things that I... I look at how I live my life, not how I say, but how I do. What do I think is going to make me happy? What do I think is going to make me successful, significant, content? Is it the things that I acquire? Is it the experiences that I have? Is it the status that I gain? Kind of the old school American dream? Is that it? Well, there's a new school American dream. Actually, it's a whole world dream. And it was captured perfectly in a bumper sticker that I saw in Phoenix last week. And it's intended to be funny, and it's cute, but I think it's way more profound than they realize. On the bumper of the car, it said, believe in your selfie. It's like, yeah, believe in your selfie. I'm being funny, cute, haha ha. Actually, that's the problem, isn't it? Not just believe in yourself, but you've got this whole, concept that may or may not be rooted in anything real but it's how you feel it's what you think it's what you want believe in that and don't let anyone stop you from that you do you because that's the only right thing to do live that out and it's the the, this celebration of us as these completely autonomous individuals and it shows up everywhere and it shows up in my life i suspect it shows up in your life sometimes right it's that subtle story that erodes the one that's supposed to be driving my life. There's a commencement speech from 2005 that, uh, you know, most commencement speeches probably fall more or less in some way into the you do you, this is great, go change the world because you're amazing. And um, this is an author, his name is uh, David Foster Wallace. And he delivered this uh, commencement speech in 2005, and it's easy to download. I've got the whole transcript here. There's a book based on it that developed. You can watch it. It's got millions of views. Millions of people have taken their time and chosen to sit and watch a commencement speech. Time has described it as the greatest commencement speech of all time. And it's interesting. David Foster Wallace is not a believer. In fact, I'm not even sure he could be described as religious, but he is spiritual. And the interesting thing is he pushes back against that idolization of self, that story. I'll just read you a few things because I think he's got such penetrating insight. And this isn't somebody who's um, listening to the word. This is somebody who's just thinking and thinking about the stories that drive our lives he talks about how those things just are, we don't even think about them, we just kind of absorb them. And then he says, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Now, this is a secular guy at a secular school. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, and then he lists a bunch, including Jesus and Allah and Yahweh, is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Did you catch that? You should probably have something more or less spiritual because anything else will eat you alive. And then he goes on to establish his point. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally kill you worship power you end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never ever you, uh, you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. These are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, and the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation. Wow. Maybe it is the greatest commencement speech ever given. He goes on, he has more to say. My point is this, there's a lot of stories out there and they don't really get questioned. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I have already opted to abandon those stories and let him rewrite everything. But I still live in this world and I still have old habits, old behaviors, and all of the hungers haven't died down. And those things can creep up and they can erode and they can do great damage. What is the story I'm living right now? Then, next question, or the next thing to deal with, is what is the story that God offers? Coming back to center. That's what the people in Hebrews managed to stick with. They could have gone back. They could have gone to the other stories, and they didn't. They stayed focused, even though they didn't get every benefit and every detail of what they would have wanted and of what God promised, because that takes more than one lifetime for God to work that out. But they stayed faithful. They didn't go back to that old story. So what is the story God offers? There's a lot. Well, actually here. Here it is. There you go. We good? There's the story. Um, That's a lot. And so I just thought it would be good for us to remember two key things. They're actually one thing through two lenses. God's story is is a kingdom story, and it's a gospel story. Now remember, it's actually the gospel of the kingdom. They are inseparably linked. But when I think in terms of kingdom, I tend to think of one set of things. When I think in terms of gospel, I tend to think in another set of things. And I think keeping those two things in my heart and mind will help me to navigate daily as God is writing his story and help me stay on track, help me stay in step with him. It's always a struggle because, well, we'll get to that because of the gospel part, right? But let's start with the kingdom part the story that God's writing in my life is a kingdom story. Obviously, there's heroic components to that. He wants to change the whole world, and he invites you and me to change the world with him by his power. But so much of life is not heroic. It's humble. And I do need a God who can say, actually, as you're changing that diaper or you're changing that car, I'll change how you do that. And in the end, how you do that, will change the world. Because the kingdom aspect of of what God is doing is ultimately God's rule, right? It is God's rule in my life spread through my life. That's God's kingdom work in the world. That's the story. God's rule in my life spread through my life. So he transforms me Right? We talk about it being modeled on Christ's redemptive love. The kingdom story is a redemptive story. It is about a rescue. It is about a recovery. It's about things being broken and messed up and then being transformed, starting with me. So it's a story of God's rule in my life that ultimately spreads through my life. And what happens is as I grow not just in the grand God things, but even in how I talk about baseball or drive-through traffic or fix dinner or interact with somebody, increasingly, as the Spirit works in me, I become more and more like Jesus, and I become more and more like what I was designed to be, and that stands out God's mission it centers in a message, but that message is authenticated by people who are visibly, obviously, incontrovertibly being transformed. Maybe a little at a time, but clearly, definitely, these people are becoming different, and they're becoming different because God's at work in their life. That's the story. That's the kingdom work. That's the rule of God working in me and then spreading through me so to partner maybe intentionally let me just give you a couple thoughts for a long time spiritual leaders have talked about a concept called corum deo living before the face of god just every moment of every day living in the presence of god in relationship with him and ultimately the kingdom kind of boils down to that and it cashes out if you will with a pair of eyes right you have a pair of eyes that allow you to see and get real depth perception and clarity if they're working properly. Well, I'm going to give you a pair of eyes the letter I, that will allow you to see in kingdom terms and give you depth perception and clarity and the ability to navigate. And the two eyes are this, intimacy and intentionality. If I am allowing God to rewrite my life and I understand his rule in me and then spreading through me is what it's about... Every day centers in two things, intimacy and intentionality. How do I cooperate with him? How do I know him? How do I respond to him? How do I become like him? Not through my hard moral work. It may involve that. At times it does involve that. But at the end of the day, it's through relationship, right? 2 Corinthians 3, we are transformed. By beholding, we're transformed from one level of, of gloriousness to the next because we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And that comes through intimacy. That comes through knowing God, right? I have the ability to walk in the world in a meaningful way by being connected to the one who creates meaning, who is the source of meaning, who understands all meaning, and then getting it. The more that I know him, the more that I know everything rightly, right? Because I begin to see the world the way he does. I begin to feel about the world the way he does. I begin to see priorities. I begin to even see baseball the way that he does. And so I see, hey, that's kind of a fun thing. That's a good thing to have in life. But it certainly is a horrible God and the center of gravity of my life doesn't belong there, even as a baseball player. The center of gravity of my life is, what does that look like to the glory of God? And as I grow in intimacy with him, understand him, my heart beats with his. Not only does he transform me, he transforms how I engage with the world very naturally. That's not to say everything happens naturally, there's work there's no place in scripture that says, yeah, just give up. You don't work. Like, no, there's a lot of work. But the starting point is always with God, right? And so that's the intimacy piece is I know him and experience him and love him and am loved by him. And that reshapes me. And then the intentionality comes into place. What does it look like for that person that I'm becoming to do this next thing, to live this next day, to think about this next year, to make this next choice, right? The intentionality of somebody who is increasingly becoming like Jesus then becomes what he intends. I don't wanna oversimplify. There are doubtless many other things that factor in. We don't have time to just pull all that stuff out. But at the core, I think that's true. And as as an anchor point, I think that's sufficient to say kingdom of God is God's rule in me spreading through me? And if I want to tap into that reality, start with intimacy and intentionality as my daily experience, right? Because if I do that, my life will be redemptive, not exploitive. How much of our lives, even those of us who aren't particularly narcissistic and selfish, but we're just human, which means we're particularly narcissistic and selfish. Right, how how much of our lives are actually exploitive? I'm looking to every situation to the advantage that I can get. How is this going to affect me and how can I shift the, you know, shift, the, shift the probabilities or shift the situation where it's going to play to my favor? Right? And I go, into, I go into life always looking to exploit the advantage. What does it look like if suddenly uh, that flips? What if I actually believe God when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of? And then I just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not to say I'm not responsible, not to say I don't have a retirement savings or think about those things, but I don't trust those things and I don't live for those things. And in fact, my life is redemptive. It is, it is a creative, not a consumptive life. That is, I'm blessed to be a blessing. How do I leverage who I am and what God's given me for his glory and for the good of others, right? That, that all flips, There's plenty of battle lines that are drawn daily. But at the core, it's, do I really know Jesus? Am I really in communion with Jesus? Is that intimacy there? Then am I intentionally living out the dynamics of that? Right, that's the kingdom story. Now, there's also the gospel story, right? And I've said those are the same thing, but looking through different lenses, let me read you these verses. Oh, I should have read and I turned there and I never read it. A Colossians, the kingdom. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom have redemption, forgiveness of sins. That's, that's a description of us. We've been taken out of one kingdom and brought into another. That defines everything. The gospel, there's so many places we could go. Very, very familiar verses. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is Romans one. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the righteousness, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, I came to faith, I came to God, the gospel was applied to my life in a moment when I fully trusted Him. When I stopped trusting myself, I gave up my addiction to being my own God surrendered, repented, and threw myself in with him and just said, here I am. I am yours. Please accept me. I believe what you did through Jesus is all that is necessary. I have nothing to offer you. Please take me anyway because of your love and your grace. Here I am. And I am entrusting myself to you, right? That is the moment of faith that transforms and begins the transformation. But there's a daily and continual faith Right, it's every moment of life is about faith. It's not I start by faith. This is what Galatians says. You don't start by faith and then live by all this hard work. You live daily by faith. In other words, a gospel perspective remembers that I have to daily live at the corner of incapable and uncompromising two things that shouldn't be in the same place, and that's the corner I live on. In every moment of every day, for everything God calls me to, I am utterly incapable in myself. At the same time, he doesn't grade on a curve and I'm not going to dumb it down. I'm not going to back away. I'm not going to look for loopholes. I'm going to be uncompromising. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now I've got a crisis, right? And every day, no matter how long I've walked with Jesus, I still need a Savior. I still need the gospel to be true, that it is not my ability and my righteousness. It is the work of God, the ongoing work of God that anchors me, that says, You can live this day and the next day and the next and face it without fear is is, as intimidating as it is. Say, it's beyond me. I can't do this. So let's do it. God, here I am. He's given me his spirit. Right? I live life, if you will, in a kind of surrendered diligence. But there's this, 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 this gospel center that says, okay, my story is going to be written by you. And it's crazy what you're going to do. I can't do it, but I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to trust you in it. I mean, that's really the story that we saw in Hebrews, right? And I think, I think one of the things that's really critical as we let God rewrite our story is that we don't fall into old patterns of... Um, moralism and self-will, right? We are just weak. We can't do it. And I'm, I'm just really blessed by a, a short poem by, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor, man of God, Nazi Germany, wound up dying in the concentration camp. And uh, he was seeking to live faithfully for God, and he felt so small. He's actually one of the heroes of the faith, and he had such great integrity and such great spiritual stature that most of us would go, I'd just be happy to be like him. And, and you could see that. And at the same time, he's just, he's living at the corner, if you will, of uncompromising and incapable. Like I, I, yi, yi, what you're calling me to do, God, this is so far beyond me. And yet, and, and, and here's where he comes out. He says, but I'm yours. I'm yours. My mess, your mercy, they work together. I'm yours, whatever else happens, I'm anchored. So always I can begin again. I'm trusting you, moment by moment. And he wrote this while he was in prison. And it's kind of looking at him and saying, who am I? Actually, that's the name. Who am I? They often tell me I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I would walk, I would talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I would bear the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly like one accustomed to win. Am I really then all that which other men tell of? Or am I what I know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage struggling for breath? as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger at despotism and petty humiliation, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me like a beaten army fleeing disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I'm thine. Here's someone acquainted with hard things who was faithful to the end to walk the story God had for him, and his story is far harder than I'm sure mine will be, and he had all these struggles. Like moments, it seems like it's going great. Everyone tells me it's going great, but I see what's on the inside, and I'm struggling, and I'm hurting, and I'm scared, and I don't know. I don't know much, but I do know this. I'm yours. And that's my anchor point, right? The story God offers me is a kingdom story and it's a gospel story. I don't have to have it all together because I'm his. But moment by moment, day by day, in the little things and in the grand things, I can be part of what he's doing because I know him and I'm known by him and he's transforming me and I can, by the power of his spirit, intentionally take the next step. So the final question is this, where's your script this morning? Have you let God rewrite your script? I'm talking about that initial step where you come and say, I've been writing this story and it's not working. You know, um, David Foster Wallace in that great speech he gave, he ultimately concluded, look, We have to have something beyond ourselves. We can't just be selfish. We need to really be learning. We need to be gracious. We need to be serving others, which sounds great. And it is great, but it doesn't go far enough. It's not enough of an anchor. And do you know that three years after he delivered that speech, his wife came home and found that he'd hanged himself in their living room. He could see the problem, but he didn't find his way fully to the solution. God has a better story, one that is sufficient even in the hard things, and one that always ends well. There is no such thing as an ultimately tragic life with Christ. There may be lots of tragedy in the life, but none of us lives a tragedy in the end. George Herbert, the poet, said it this way, death used to be the executioner, But because of the gospel, he is now merely the gardener. Our bodies are seeds that are planted in the ground that will sprout again one day. What story are you trying to live by? Just hand the script over and say, I surrender. You're God, help. If you need help doing that, we'd love to talk to you. Most of you I know have done that, so here's the question. Day after day, there's these constant edits. It's like an ongoing Google Doc, and God is always putting this edit, and this edit, and this edit, and this edit, and and it's my job to go on there and say, accept, 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 accept. Not accept, E-X-C-E-P-T. Accept, A-C-C-E-P-T. How terrible it is when I flip those around. Maybe he's... Got an edit for you this morning. We're gonna ask the ushers to come. We're gonna take our offering. And as the offering is going by, um, there'll be just a chance to quietly pray. And I would just encourage you to let God speak to you. What edit is he wanting to talk to you about this morning? And what will you do with that? Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. (sighs) Thank you for giving us a better story. Would you help us? by your grace and mercy in this moment to offer ourselves for your edits. Maybe, Lord, there's somebody here who's never surrendered and trusted. Would you bring them to that place? Help them not to resist. Help them to see your love and surrender and trust. Lord, you know where each of us is. Meet us in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.